What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Thursday, August 29th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Seth Stevenson, sitting in for Mike Pesca. In Mike's absence, you can expect 70% fewer puns and also a much less identifiably regional accent. A little about me, I'm a writer here at Slate and also one of the hosts of the Secret History of the Future podcast, which is a collaboration between Slate and The Economist. As you're hearing this, our latest season is in full swing. So once you've finished listening to The Gist, click over and subscribe to The Secret History of the Future and give it a listen. So I noticed there's been a bunch of sci-fi adjacent news this week, slightly creepy, disquieting, futuristic seeming things, but they're actually happening. This week in the news, truth is stranger than science fiction. Yesterday, DARPA sent out a disturbing tweet. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, basically the skunk works for our military. And they tweeted that they were in immediate need of a large subterranean space. Let me quote them here. The ideal space would be a human-made underground environment spanning several city blocks with complex layout and multiple stories, including atriums, tunnels, and stairwells. Now, that freaked some people out when they saw it. I happen to know that DARPA has an ongoing subterranean challenge, officially called the Sub-T. It's essentially a contest to create new kinds of technology to help humans explore, navigate, and probably do warfare in urban underground environments. So I had an inkling of what this was about. But here's what still freaked me out. DARPA was putting out a public call for an elaborate underground space and said it needed responses within two days. Whoa, why the rush, DARPA? Seems like a sudden ramp-up of intensity around this. I can only conclude that a dire underground emergency has occurred and that DARPA needs to game plan a response in a test environment right now, quickly, before things get out of hand. As to what this emergency entails, if you were in fourth grade in 1984, like I was, you're familiar with the motion picture CHUD. That acronym stands for Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers. The movie documents an incident in which toxic chemical waste mutates a bunch of people who then hide underground in New York City. And these people become the titular cannibalistic humanoid underground dwelling chuds. They're extremely dangerous. And I'm pretty sure they're what DARPA is dealing with right now. It's, it's another incident like this, a chud incident. So if you have a large subterranean space replete with atriums and tunnels, please let DARPA know. And I wish DARPA luck. They've got their work cut out for them with the chuds. Chud. Cannibalistic, humanoid, underground dwellers. Chud. They're not staying down there anymore. The other sci-fi news is that today marks the official launch of the new United States Space Command, or SpaceCom. This is not yet the vaunted Space Force. That comes later, maybe, as a sort of action arm of SpaceCom. For now, Space Command joins the other commands, like Central Command and Cyber Command, but you know, for space. Here's how President Trump introduced the organization in the Rose Garden this afternoon. It's a big deal. As the newest combatant command, Spacecom will defend America's vital interests in space, the next warfighting domain. And I think that's pretty obvious to everybody. It's all about space. With those words, Trump was echoing Defense Secretary Mark Esper. At his confirmation hearing last month, Esper said, and I quote, I think we need to fully develop the domain of space as a warfighting domain. 
Yikes, warfighting domain. So much for we came in peace for all mankind. Turns out that space is an unsafe space. CNN's Jim Shudo published a book called The Shadow War earlier this year. And as he made the media rounds, he warned that, indeed, a space conflict among nations is totally possible. Here he is on NPR. Use the example of space. So here we have both Russia and China with weapons, kamikaze satellites floating in the heavens above us today that can take out and destroy U.S. satellites. China has a grappler, a kidnapper satellite, they call it. They can pluck U.S. satellites out of orbit. They're already up there. Kidnapper satellites. Yikes times four. Satellite kidnapping is actually not the only potential space crime in the news. The New York Times has reported that an astronaut aboard the International Space Station might have inappropriately logged into her estranged spouse's bank account from a computer aboard the space station. It's not clear yet if this was an actual crime, but if it is, it would be the first known crime in space, except for when Richard Nixon's name went on that plaque we put on the moon, which was a crime in my book. On the show today, I spiel about Greta Thunberg, climate change, airplanes and sailboats, guilt and hypocrisy, and fleegscom, which I will explain. But first, I talk to Noah Bookbinder, whose legal organization, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, has been documenting the Trump administration's many instances of dubious ethical behavior verging into flat-out corruption. Here's that. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. With us today is Noah Bookbinder, who is the executive director of CREW. That acronym stands for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Noah, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, let's talk about what's going on right now. Let's talk about ethics and the Trump administration. I think people are generally aware of the sort of penumbra of corruption going on. But if you were just going to pick ethical situations around President Trump that you want people to know about where you feel something deeply unethical is being done. What, what do you are like the truly egregious things that are happening? 
Um, well, I think I mean I think you really have to start with what I what I think of as as kind of the original sin of the Trump administration, which is the president's decision to keep his businesses, these Trump properties and businesses. There have been more than 2,300 conflicts of interest arising from the president's businesses. Those are cases where the businesses have intersected with the presidency and with the people seeking to influence it. So things like the president uh, visiting his properties, like him announcing this morning, and this is not, didn't go into that list of 2,300, uh, that the next G7 summit would be held at his company. And, you know, all of the political fundraisers, his allies are, are holding at his, at his properties and major lobbying groups, particularly in industries that want to influence the president, like fossil fuels, are holding events at his hotels. So that's, uh, that's one really huge area. How, how would you practically solve some of these? Like, you know, the president owns Mar-a-Lago, guests can pay inordinate sums of money to join Mar-a-Lago and then get the president's ear and influence him on policy, I suppose. Would you make him sell Mar-a-Lago? Would you, would you, how would you handle something like that if you, you know, could walk in tomorrow and have your druthers about, about what to do? You know, I think the, the easy answer and the right answer is that uh, a president sells his businesses before going into office. Turn them, you turn them over to a trustee, somebody whose job it is to do things like this, who sells the businesses for the best price that, that he or she can get. President, you know, leaves with a pocket full of money, but no, um, no conflicts of interest in this way. Um, and when uh, he's done being president, he can do whatever he wants uh, business-wise, but he shouldn't be able to be in a position where he owns those businesses, uh, he knows what they are, he knows what will help them, and he's able to, to do that while he's in office. You, you mentioned, you know, as we're talking, the president has just announced that he, that he wants to hold the next G7 summit at his golf course, his Doral golf course outside Miami, when you when something like that happens, is there like a bat phone at the crew center that lights up red and, and then you all leap into action? What happens when you see a sort of ethical transgression in the making? Uh, it's 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 not too far from that actually. Uh, we we already knew about that as an emerging situation because uh, he had already indicated there already been reporting that that Doral was being considered. And what are the mechanisms that that you bring to bear? What are like the the tangible things that you can affect uh, when you decide to to sink your teeth into one of these issues? We can file a, a complaint, which is different from going to court, but where we go to law enforcement or administrative agencies and say, hey, this person did something wrong, you need to investigate that and take action if appropriate. Um, and you know that will actually sometimes result in people losing their jobs or people being fired or at the very least raising awareness because I think it's, it's a much better story to tell that we took this legal action than just that you know, we're really mad about X or Y or Z. You know, raising awareness is great, but it's also nice to see actual repercussions happen. You mentioned people getting fired or losing their jobs. Has anyone from the Trump administration actually been fired or, 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 or faced any other kinds of real repercussions from, from something that you've done? Uh, sure. I mean, it's often uh, can be a little bit difficult to know exactly why somebody leaves a job because usually there's not an announcement that uh, that somebody is fired for X or Y or Z reason. Um, but often when people leave, we will 
hear accounts that that uh, complaints and violations played a major role in, in those decisions. So people like uh, former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. More recently, um, there, there's an office called the Office of Special Counsel, not to be confused with uh, Special Counsel Mueller. This is a different operation. Uh, that handles a law called the Hatch Act, and it's a law that says that um, government officials can't misuse their official position for, for partisan politics. And one person who does that constantly is, is Kellyanne Conway. And we at Crew have filed numerous complaints detailing all of the times that she's improperly used her official position uh, to, to advocate for candidates or against candidates. She violated the law a couple of times. She got called on it. She kept on doing it um, and then kept on doing it some more and spoke publicly in a way that was contemptuous of the law and contemptuous of uh, the agency that administers that law. And, and all of that led this agency to say, that's enough. She should be fired. And the and the president said, essentially, we don't care. We're not going to do it. She has not been fired, despite all of these recommendations from these official bodies. I think, you know, for me and like a lot of people, we just sort of before this assumed that you can't do this stuff. And if you did, there would be like automatic consequences. And now that stuff's happening. And it seems like there aren't any consequences. And it's sort of bewildering. Why, why aren't these repercussions like automatic. Why don't they just happen? I, I I thought that that it would just happen and it wouldn't be this process of someone saying, no, no, you can't do that. And then nothing happens. You know, that, that's been one of the things that we've really, really learned over the last two years is that a lot of the checks and balances and protections that we relied on to keep our democratic system intact and make it work ethically and fairly and, and effectively are, are not uh, written into the law or where they are written into the law, they're, they're written without self-affecting enforcement provisions. And they worked in the past because there was a, a, a respect by people of both political parties and across the spectrum for uh, our norms and traditions and, and the democratic system. If you have a president who doesn't care about that, there's actually a lot that they can get away with. And you know, one of the things that, that we've learned um, is that uh, if and when we come through this current crisis, um, it's going to be really, really important to change some laws and make some of the things that in the past people have done because they were the right thing to do um, legal obligations. Yeah, so what are some of the laws you would, you, if you could choose, would be the first ones, the most important, most effective things you think we, we, we could actually enshrine in law to stop this from happening again? Uh, so, I mean, one of the ones that um, uh, gets at some of the issues I was talking about earlier is, um, you know, the fact that, that there's a conflict of interest law that uh, affects almost all federal employees, but it doesn't affect the president. And so, you know, there is not any requirement that a president sell businesses and avoid conflicts of interest. Uh, and that's obviously something that, that, that needs to change. You know, similarly, you know, things like a president uh, disclosing tax returns uh, was tradition. It's, it's, it's not law. And that is something that 
can be a weapon against uh, abuses and conflicts of interest uh, and self-enrichment. Uh, and so, you know, that ought to be made into, into law. Um, you know, nepotism laws, laws against you know, bringing your family into a position, those, at least there's an argument uh, that those don't apply to the White House. Again, something that, you know, you wouldn't have imagined would be a problem in this country necessarily, but uh, now it's clear that it is. And what we're seeing now is when you have someone who, isn't committed to democratic values, um, traditions are not enough and, and you need to actually change those laws. The thing that most recently got my goat was uh, within the last few weeks, there was a, an official White House event with the president, uh, you know, taxpayer funded, but he turned it into essentially a campaign rally where he's talking about potential democratic opponents. And he's, it was just a straight up campaign rally, which is not supposed to happen. And everyone on Twitter is saying this has turned That's into right. a campaign rally. Taxpayers aren't supposed to pay for this, but what, will there be any repercussions for that? Or is crew looking into that? What's going to happen? Uh, we are looking at that because uh, you're right that that is not supposed to happen. We get into all these kind of obscure laws that people didn't think about much because people used to just follow them. This other law called the Anti-Deficiency uh, Act, which says that money in the federal government that is appropriated, that's supposed to be spent for a specific purpose, has to be spent for for that purpose. And that means that money that's supposed to go for non-political things can't be spent uh, on politics. The problem here, and we've seen it with this president before, and that, that example in Pennsylvania seemed like a particularly egregious one, is taking something that's supposed to be an official event and, um, and turning it into a campaign rally. Whether it's by plan or whether it's because this president can't control himself, um, it's something that we've, that we've seen. Can you imagine if I got a fair press? I mean, we're leading without it. Can you imagine if these people treated me fairly? The election would be over. Have they ever called off an election before just said, look, just let's go, go on, four more years. We are looking into whether action can be taken to, at the very least, make the president's campaign pay for, for anything that became a campaign event. I want to read something that President Obama said in one of his last press conferences was after the 2016 election. He said, one of the things you discover about being president is that there are all these rules and norms and laws, and you've got to pay attention to them. And the people who work for you are also subject to those rules and norms. And that's a piece of advice that I gave to the incoming president. Now, the incoming president clearly did not listen to that advice. So I want to ask you, was President Obama wrong <laughs> that there are norms and laws that you have to pay attention to? Do you not, in fact, have to pay attention to them? I, I think there's maybe an uh, an if clause that you could put at the end of that, um, you know, which is that there are these norms and rules and laws that you have to pay attention to if you want a, a working democracy. Um, but if you don't care about that, uh, then maybe there's more room uh, to get around those rules and laws and norms than, than we were aware of. The, the next thing that Obama said in that press conference was, was how proud he was of the fact that his administration did not have a significant scandal. And he said, one reason is that we listen to the lawyers. But, but for context's sake, I want to ask you, what kinds of uh, ethical transgressions did you find in the Obama administration? Did any of them compare to what we're seeing with the Trump administration? Uh, I think that – I think it's pretty clear on the record um, that the Obama administration was a time of uh, – of quite few scandals and, and ethical transgressions. Um, they're, they're just uh, executive branch ethics were not a big problem during that, that period. 
we we certainly fought with the Obama administration on some transparency and open government issues, the, uh, uh, including uh, the Freedom of Information Act. We wanted access to White House visitor logs and had to fight with them for a little bit before they eventually agreed to open them up. And then the Trump administration reversed that and, and closed it up. So I'm not saying it was perfect, um, but the scale was, and we're not even in the same universe as what we're looking at now. Well, there you mentioned an issue, White House visitor logs. You know, you lobbied the Obama administration, so it seems like you had some success. And then with the Trump administration, no success. What's the difference? Is it just a lack of shame on one administration's part? Did you do anything <laughs> differently? Why, why did it work one time and not work the next time? I mean, we, we, we sued the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration about White House visitor logs. So our, our role has been pretty similar all through it, um, and it worked pretty well. We got um, thousands and thousands of records over a lot of years that both helped tell the story about money and influence, but also maybe in some ways helped to reduce a little bit the problems of, of money and influence by, by shining a light on it. You know, everything we've seen from this administration from day one through this morning, honestly, you know, we'd, we'd much rather them do the right thing uh, for the right reasons. But if they did the right thing because they didn't like bad publicity, you know, that's OK, too. But they don't seem to care about either of those. If President Trump gets reelected, do you have any predictions about what, like, the next frontier of ethical shenanigans could be? What is on the horizon <laughs> when it comes to abusing power? What can we look forward to? Can this get worse? I guess is what uh, I'm asking. Uh, I think there's an there's um, there's an old Yiddish saying: um, "It could always be worse," um, which is, isn't one you know that's it's not one of the ones that gives me comfort. Uh, in, but but um, I think the area where I worry a lot in that scenario is uh, the sort of breakdown of of, of key democratic principles. Um, you know, I, we certainly don't want to be in a in a situation where the pres a court. Uh, says the president can't do something, and he just decides to do it anyway, and um, and that would be uh, truly alarming if that happened. I'm not saying it will, but it's certainly something of of concern. Uh, the president has already been willing to say that he's not terribly concerned about what Congress uh, says he he can and can't do, and that's another thing that could potentially get worse. Well, on that optimistic note, I will say, Noah Bookbinder, <laughs> Executive Director for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, keep fighting the good fight, and thank you for coming on The Gist. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you. And now, the spiel. I am standing at North Cove Marina in Lower Manhattan near Battery Park. There are a few hundred people gathered here awaiting the arrival of Greta Thunberg on a sailboat that's about to come through the harbor and into the marina. Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old Swedish climate change activist. She's become globally famous basically by telling adults, you're ruining the planet for my generation. Please stop doing that. And today... Greta Thunberg. By, by the way, I'm not pronouncing that correctly. It's more like Greta Thunberg, I think, the way that she says it, but I'm not Scandinavian, so I'm not going to try. Anyway, today, Greta is arriving via sailboat here at the North Cove Marina. This was not a pleasure cruise that she was on. This was not the a leg of a regatta or something. The reason that she was on a sailboat is that Greta wanted to travel from Europe, where she lives, 
to the United States, where she wants to attend the UN's climate summit. And she didn't want to fly on an airplane because airplanes are really bad carbon emitters. They're absolutely terrible for global warming. And Greta hates carbon emissions and hates global warming. So she sailed here. And the boat she came on has solar panels and underwater turbines that can generate electricity to power all the little electronics on board, like satellite phones, the navigation systems. The boat does have an oil-burning combustion engine that it usually uses to get in and out of marinas where the space is too tight to maneuver using the wind and your sails. But they vowed they were not going to use this oil-powered engine on this trip at all. So when they came out of the marina over in England at the start of this voyage, instead of turning on their engine, they got towed by other little boats that used electric motors to power their propellers. This is a pretty elaborate workaround, but the goal here was a 100% carbon-free journey across the Atlantic, and Greta did it. She's about to arrive here in the marina. Congratulations, Greta. Zero carbon emissions. That was yesterday at the marina. She did arrive. She came in tugged by a little boat with an electric motor. So she was totally zero carbon all the way. Heady times. There was a lot of buzz in the air there at the marina. I'm back in the Slate studios now. I'm a little more sober and subdued. And I want to spiel about this event a little bit. First, I want to say that I am personally very much in favor of reducing carbon emissions. I'm a recreational sailor. I sail around New York Harbor all the time. So I love to see sailing in the news. And I actually wrote a whole book about circling the globe without using any airplanes. I got across the oceans by hitching rides on cargo ships, which aren't perfect, but they emit way less greenhouse gas than airplanes do. All that said, I think this story about Greta crossing the Atlantic on a boat highlights a slightly ridiculous moment that we've arrived at when it comes to transportation and climate change. A moment where our expectations for convenience don't align with our principles about environmental responsibility. In order to get across the Atlantic Ocean, Greta used pretty much the fastest sailboat money can buy. It is a sexy sailboat, I'll tell you. A 60-foot racing yacht made of space-age materials. It's got hydrofoils. It is the Ferrari of sailboats. And its super-fast cruising speed is about 18 miles an hour. That's if the wind is cooperating. At some points on Greta's trip, when I would look at the tracker, the boat was going more like 12 miles an hour which I think you'll agree is not especially fast. It's about the speed of a bicycle. As a result, it took Greta a full 15 days to get from Plymouth, England to New York City. And that kind of time frame really just isn't practical for most people. If you've got a two-week vacation from work and you want to go to Paris, you probably don't want to spend the whole two weeks sailing across the ocean to get there. Or that business conference coming up in Hong Kong. Chances are your boss won't be thrilled if you take a month to sail there and a month to sail back. In a perfect example of this quandary, here's a guy we saw out at the marina yesterday. He'd sort of stumbled into the hubbub around Greta's arrival, and he was cheering her on. He was a big fan, loved what she was doing. My kids are absolutely obsessed by her, and everyone in the UK is as well, yeah. When we asked him if he would personally opt to sail for two weeks across the ocean instead of taking an airplane for six hours, it turned out he'd come here for a vacation with his wife on a plane. I flew over from London this morning, so. Do you feel guilty about that? I mean, we talked about that on the flight, actually, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, but, we're, you know, everyone has to make the decisions and... Did you have 15 days to spare to get across the Atlantic? We did not, obviously. We're working people. We took our summer holiday in the UK this year, whereas normally we would fly somewhere. So, yeah, yeah. everyone has to make decisions, right? I don't mean to single this guy out. And Greta herself recognizes this is an issue. Here's what she told The Times about her sailboat adventure. Quote, By doing this, it also shows how impossible it is today to live sustainable, that in order to travel with zero emissions, that we have to sail like this across the Atlantic Ocean. 
Greta was in part just trying to raise awareness by doing this, but she also kind of had to do it. She had no choice. If she'd flown here, she'd have been called a hypocrite by all the climate change skeptics who are rooting against her. You see those kinds of charges lobbed at Al Gore whenever he flies in an airplane to give a speech about global warming. You could argue that the speech he's giving will ultimately serve to eliminate more carbon emissions than his airplane ride created. But in a certain sense, it is a fair criticism of him. He's not walking the talk. He's flying the talk. Another person who's gotten skewered on this recently is Prince Harry, the British royal who's talked a big game about climate change, but has also done a lot of private jet travel to, for instance, visit Elton John's villa in Nice. In that case, Elton John assured everybody that he paid for carbon offsets for Prince Harry's flights. But if it's only okay to use airplanes when you pay for carbon offsets, that creates this unequal situation where people who can afford the offsets get to travel guilt-free, and those who can't afford them have to either not fly or wallow in remorse about ruining the planet. Anyway, the jury seems to be out on whether carbon offsets are an effective tool. There's so much guilt out there right now about using airplanes that the Swedes, Greta's people, They've invented a word for it, fliegskam. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it translates as flight shame, deep shame about using airplanes. The real problem here, I would argue, is that we as a society have arrived at a place where we know that airplanes are bad for the planet and that we need to stop flying so much and that flying in planes is one of the worst things an individual can do when it comes to carbon emissions. But at the same time, we've developed a lot of expectations about covering long distances very quickly. Our society at this point depends on the ability to fly across an ocean in six hours. So many things in both business and leisure situations are built around that expectation. So how do we resolve this? I see three possibilities. One is just to not travel long distances. I feel like that's not a great resolution, though. People like to see the world, and I think it's a good thing. Broadens our horizons. Might even reduce bigotry. The second possibility is that we figure out a way to fly airplanes emission-free running them on soybeans or something. That would be great. And you'd think, given the fact that we can go to Mars, that we could figure out how to make a low-emission, long-haul aircraft. But we haven't yet. And it doesn't seem like we're going to figure it out in the near term. Especially if our standard is that vehicles running on renewable energy need to be exactly as fast as vehicles that run on fossil fuels. That's a high bar. Which brings me to the one other thing we can do. And this would be my preference. And that thing is just to reset our expectations. Maybe not back to the 19th century when you'd cross the ocean in a three-masted schooner and it would take a few weeks, but maybe back to, say, 1952. That was before the dawn of the jumbo jet era, and the ocean liner was still the way most people went between America and Europe. Ocean liners had gotten pretty fast at that point. In 1952, an ocean liner set a record, which, by the way, still stands, by crossing the Atlantic in three days and 11 hours. It's pretty fast, right? I feel like that's fast enough. I know that if we stopped using airplanes, you know, things wouldn't be as efficient. But what if we just agreed to slow down the world enough that it wouldn't be crazy to take three and a half days to get over to Europe for a business conference or for your friend's wedding? I feel like we could do that. We could just slow the world down a little bit in order to save it. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienemay and Daniel Schrader. Grazie to Mike for letting me fill in. I look forward to his return as much, if not more, than you do. The gist. I will take this final opportunity to again plug The Secret History of the Future, now playing in a podcast app near you. Umperu, depru, du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>